So Mary, when I think about our American girl journey so far, I think of American hero Ariana Grande. Okay, sure. And I was thinking about her big hit of last year, Thank You Next, and kind of how it encapsulates our journey so far. Tell me more. So I still think we're going to end up with Molly. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think she's always a match. We know that some of our fans have written some songs about Tia. Sure. We listened and laugh. You're about to get married. Ooh. For Pete, we are not thankful. More on Definitely that later. Definitely not. When I think of One Taught Me Love, I think that that's Kirsten. One Taught Me Patience, Felicity, I hope so. One Taught Me Pain, Josefina Montoya. Ooh, yes, she sure did. I mean, so powerful. Thank you. Next. Do you remember when she licked the donut? Yeah, I think about that all the time. <laughs> I do too. I think about I that too. all the time. And I'm like, that's that person. Like she, her PR people deserve an Emmy, a yeah. Tony, and an Oscar. But they have convinced us that she is not a person who licked a donut for sport. We saw it. We saw it. I mean, it's like the most shocking footage other than like the Sapruder film, Ariana Grande licking a donut. <laughs> yes. It's too much. Anyway, welcome to American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I am still Allison. You know, I thought you were going to change it to Ariana this week, but I guess no. not. No, no, but I heard that song and I thought, wow, you know, we're on our fourth American Girl and Ariana Grande so beautifully paid tribute to Mean Girls, which I've now decided is a revision of Addie book two. It's all here. That's true. And is it a coincidence that this week there was a trend on Twitter that people didn't know who Tina Fey was? And is that a purposeful forgetting after our interpretation of the Addie books, which in some ways implied that Tina Fey stole and or drew upon this history to write Mean Girls? I'd like to say that we caused that, but the bottom line is that I am Liz Lemon. Wow. We do sometimes talk about this where people who know us both would say, like, which one of you is Amy and which one of you is Tina? And you pretty firmly have always felt that you're Tina. Yes. Is there a specific reason why? Um, Like, I'd like to cite Night Cheese or something else. I think the transformative moment for me was there ain't no party like a Liz Lemon party because a Liz Lemon party is mandatory. (laughs) That just captures my personality so much. Um. And I also responded more closely to her memoir, Bossy Pants, than Yes, Please by Amy Poehler. So it's not so much that like I'm Amy Poehler, but you're just not Amy Poehler? Yes. So am I Amy Poehler at all? Yeah, I think so. I'm having an identity crisis. Yeah, (laughs) it's okay. (laughs) We've been in kind of a place because, first of all, we're very excited to talk about Addie Book 3, Addie's Surprise. So many surprises. The real surprise in my life this week, which it shouldn't have been, was Love is Blind. Yes. And they had to go with that because per this show, love is not patient or kind. No. You know, love is boastful. If you're a man on this show, 
Um, there's so much going on. First of all, Netflix has been trying to get me to watch this, which made me not want to watch it. Same. And I tried The Circle, which some of our listeners recommended to me, and I watched episode one, and then I just couldn't get into it. And there was a guy in there who was so obnoxious, I couldn't get past it. So I may have to circle, pun intended, back to that someday, but not today. But Love is Blind, I dipped into it immediately, was texting you like, Allison, please put your life on hold. I'm like taking aggressively taking screenshots. <laughs> yeah. It is absolutely insane. I think but to the same degree, Netflix knew that I would love it, so I fought it. You have I'm to. very glad I have stopped doing that. One of my friends read my tweet that I was watching it, and she said, I stopped what I was doing and put it on. Like it was the thing that I needed. It got me through my night. I enjoyed it. It has been so shocking to me how both like absolutely banal and how much it shouldn't work and how much I wouldn't even let it play to the end. I was like, next. Yes. My mistake is I'm watching it right before bed. So it gets me like really fired up and I can't sleep. But also I can't let myself go to the next episode because I do have to go to work in the morning. The concept is that people are going to fall in love. First of all, I'll say it starts with about two dozen or more people cohabitating a house in gender segregated quarters. And they're only allowed to talk to people of the opposite sex through walls in like these fuzzy padded rooms. And then if you fall in love, you can get engaged and finally see each other and then get a trip to a Mexican resort and see if it's going to work out. They go from like 24 to 30 people to just 12 total hot ones. That's correct. And I did read an article that said there's a guy who I basically thought was a therapist for two episodes because (laughs) I never saw him go on a date. And I was like, why is he just hanging around? First of all, episode one, when they're in the gender segregated housing, I was like, oh, my God, finally, someone has made the shaker reality show of my dreams. They're in segregated housing. I know, Allison, this is what we want. It's like, give us this. I want to see people make furniture. I want to see gender segregated housing. I just, it's what I want. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. This is it. And then they went on dates. And I was like, okay, well, this isn't what I thought this was going to be. However, that guy, I thought he was a therapist. I read an article that said he actually met someone and got engaged. And the producers were like, we didn't expect this to be this successful. So we can't cover everyone. So you're out. (laughs) I need to tell you something. And I was going to save this until later. It's Mother Anne's birthday this week. No. I know. I know. I didn't want us to miss it. If you happen to live in the Kentucky area, it's her birthday, the weekend of Saturday, February 29th. Who knew that she had this bonus day birthday? It makes total sense. I get shaker updates in my inbox for like a variety of reasons. Same. And this email told me Mother Anne would be 284 or a mere 71, depending on how you count it. Literally don't know what that means. Counting the leap year. So they don't count oh, her for any of okay. the years that they didn't have February okay. 29. I thought it was more metaphysical than that. You know, I'll give them that. Who knows? But it is it is her birthday. So I want to say happy birthday to Mother Ann Lee. Wow. Mother Ann Lee, too pure for this world. Um, maybe a mystic, maybe not. Maybe a scammer of the ages. I don't know. Like, I thought we were living in the age of the scammer. Like, possibly not. You know, Allison and I, as we've said on the show, we've committed to going to every Shaker site we possibly can. We've gone to many. We still have more to do. We've never been to Ohio, for example. 
I went to um, the New Britain Museum of American Art last week to see Kara Walker's exhibit. More on that later. And they have a shaker collection. I just said, Anna, I need to like be with the shaker furniture for five minutes. It's true. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to stare at it. And then I'm thinking like, did Oprah donate this? Is this from – because some of the labels say from a private collection, on loan from a private collection. And as people may or may not know, Oprah owns the largest private collection of shaker furniture. Just going to throw that out there. I love that. It's my favorite thing about Oprah, one of. There was something both profound and extremely odd about the way the men and the women just paired off for blind love. There's also something – almost like felicity level in terms of faux color blindness where everyone on the show is saying like in this experiment like race doesn't matter class doesn't matter nothing matters first of all it always matters like and that becomes very clear in people's first conversations yes but they're like nothing about how you look matters like of course it always matters right like and it obviously plays a role in how you're attracted to someone. And that's not vain to admit. It's like, that's biology. You know, like, of course, we hope it goes beyond that for you. But the, oh my God, the, there are so many cringy moments just in the first episode. Barn, aka biggest villain on the show, biggest idiot, is talking to Diamond. And she says, my name is Diamond. And he's like, oh, what strip club do you work at? Just kidding. And it's like, I'm sorry, during Black History Month, we have to see this? Like... I'm so I love that you Freudian slipped and called him Barn when his name is Barnett. No, he goes by Barn. No, he does. Yes, not. he does. Allison, that's it. I'm googling this. He does not go by he, Barn. I swear, your to God. listeners, Barn. Love is blind. I'm doing a Google search right now. Barn, love is blind. Show me the money. Okay, I can't actually tell you what I'm looking at right now because it doesn't support my point of view, and I will not be wrong on this show. I just want to say also we're living through some complicated times where like, again, we've mentioned previously, there is a presidential election on the horizon. There's a lot at stake with global warming. By the time this is out, we're basically all going to probably know who Peter picks to be his wife or who acquiesces and accepts a desert proposal. Yes. I just want to say like, I've never been more and less invested in people's conversations than I have been this season. And the engine that has kept me going is joining just a whole bunch of bachelor discussion groups on Facebook where literally every person is like, I don't care about this show. And we're living with this interesting tension of like, we are constantly like reaffirming our disinvestment. And I don't know what to make of that. It's something about our times for sure where Everyone seems to feel some kind of pressure to be blasé and like, I don't care about anything anymore. Like nothing matters. And yet the thing that has like the lowest possible stakes in my life, everyone seemingly, if you go on Twitter or Facebook is like, I will not stand for this. Even though at the same time, they're like, I could care less if I watch this show. This show, this season ended two weeks ago in my mind. I don't care about anything anymore. It's like, well, here you are posting on Twitter. So something's going on. They pushed me with you know, that week of over three hours of content. I was like, yeah, I'm going to watch because I deserve that. I just I just really and truly don't care. And I hate that this past week they made it all about Madison being a virgin, which I hate when The Bachelor makes out a plot line. It's just, it's like, I hate these tropes about women when it's like, we should all be focused on hating this man, period. That's how I feel. I really don't care anymore. 
I do think, as everyone has been saying, the production went in a different direction with just being sort of open about its manipulation. I think to a degree that really is rather unprecedented this season, like having the women stay together during Fantasy Suites Week, Mm. right? The way that so many things have been contrived. At the same time, if they doubled the amount of content they put out, I would watch it. I hear you, but I think at the same time, love is blind coming into my life. It's like they're operating at such a higher level of drama and insanity, or you might say a much lower level, depending on your view. But I mean, we literally have people who are saying I love you to someone they can't see within four days of knowing them. And there's something fascinating happening where they're like, obviously, you're not going to be able to see anybody for this first part of the show. And the women still dress up quite a bit and are like, you know, put on these very elaborate outfits, the makeup, everything. And the men literally show up in sweatpants like an unmade bed and are like laying across the couch. Barn, who I'm just calling him Barn. I'm committing to that. You're rolling your eyes. I'm committing to this. He brings his ukulele out at one point. And he's like, I love Taylor Swift. And I'm like, who are you? It's what we've earned at this point. If we're not going to solve climate change, this is what we get. You know what? Honestly, at work, these undergrads were asking me advice about writing their resumes. They're seniors. And they were like, do you think we should format it with this or that? And do you think we should make a personal website? And I honestly just stopped them. And I was like, you should stop what you're doing, go on Netflix and watch Love is Blind because the planet may burn and who really cares anymore? And they were just like, this kind of doesn't help us. And so no. then I did have to actually answer their question. But it's like, this is pulling me and it's giving me life. I'm recommending it to everybody. And when one man proposes to his betrothed, who he's still not seen, he literally does so by giving her a bow tie. And he that. says at one point, I'm your gift. Yeah. And I'm like, What? But I think what works about it is if you are willing to self-select into this process and to engage with it fully, and I think we're seeing the six most attractive people of each gender who chose to engage it at the highest level, like you probably do have some level of compatibility because you've thrown out all other social convention to think of this as your path. That's where I think it works. I'm not as far into it as you are, but I am worried for Mark, who is 24, pursuing someone who is 34 and clearly more into someone who's already rejected her. It's hard. Jessica wants Barnett. Yes. Who has a pimple on his nose, which I thought was bad lighting, but it was a pimple. But I was tracking that. I know. But he kind of rejects her. So then she goes back to Mark, who she's already sort of hinted that she's about to reject. And Mark, instead of being like, forget it, you clearly don't like privilege me. Instead, like straight to camera and testimonials, like my mom said, you know, if you love someone, let them go. And if they come back, like it's that's what's supposed to happen. Like he doesn't really get the saying quite right. And you're like, Mark, no, this is just like bad behavior. This is emotional abuse. Not you being not like the redemptive power of love. Also is deeply concerned for Mark outing on a date that he has a tattoo with blank spaces for his future children's names. (laughs) I did not notice that. And it's like, what if George Washington had done that? Like those lines would have just been empty. Just saying. You know, we don't fully have the airtime. I mean, we do, but um, we're both on the journey of reading Alexis Coe's book. We were intrigued to check out You Never Forget Your First about America's first president, George Washington. And maybe we'll have to do a book club on that at some point if that's something people are interested in. But it's kind of a very different take on biography and really centers 
George Washington still, but kind of looks very differently at his story from a feminist lens and offering something different, I think, to the usual stockpile of dad books about great men in history. That's true. And, you know, it's, I feel like at this point I need to check in with you because it's only been about a week since we recorded a book by one of the great women of history. Speaking of our book club, Anne Rinaldi. Anne Rinaldi. If you are not a member of our Patreon, we understand. If you are a member of our Patreon, we hope that you will make time for drums and you will spend some time with us and Anne Rinaldi for the one year anniversary of our show. To the dear listeners who have sent us information and intel about Anne Rinaldi and a childhood photo, we thank you. To those of you who are holding back because of NDAs or fear of retribution, we'll support you. Listen, I've already have a lawyer on retainer because of certain Valtrip related, you know, comments and statements. I'm just taking some preemptive action for us both. No problem. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to fold my Anne Rinaldi stuff into that. And yeah. I was listening to the Fifty Shades of Grey music this morning when I woke up, just thinking about Anne Rinaldi's book. It'll make sense if you've heard the episode. And, you know, I'm still not over it. I'm not recovered. No. no. And if you if you have joined our Patreon, a very sincere thank you for supporting the show. Yes, definitely. Much appreciated. We value you and give us your feedback, your thoughts, your feelings. We can we can take it and, you know, we may have traumatized you, so that's kind of on us. So feel free to reach out. We do love hearing from you. People are making me laugh so hard. They're sending me, like, love is blind stuff. And I mentioned I'm watching Murder, She Wrote, and I've gotten people sending me, like, there's an account called Murder, She Wore that's all every, like, photos nice. of Jessica Fletcher's outfits. It's amazing. So thank now, you. Now, there is no murder in this book. That we but know. But Connie of. Porter one heck of a tale. You know, we mentioned in the last episode, possibly the greatest Hallmark commercial of all time. And that same level of emotion hit me at different points reading this book. Should we get into it? Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. Okay, I will give us the rapid recap, which is quite good from the publisher. So we are still set in 1864, which is important. Addie and her mother know that Christmas will be hard without Papa, Sam, and Esther. When Addie spots a beautiful red scarf in a secondhand shop, she determines to get it for Mama to brighten her holiday. To save the money, Addie decides to keep half the tips she earns by making deliveries for Mrs. Ford's dress shop. But when Addie sees the play of newly freed slaves, she feels torn. Can she help them and still get the scarf for Mama? 
Addie's Christmas surprise for Mama ends up being different from what she planned. And a surprise awaiting Addie is better than she even dared to hope for. This is a great summary. There are a few other key things. A good amount of this book takes place both in a church and around the church, of which now they are part of that community in a very meaningful way. We also get Addie's first radicalized moment where she's against capitalism. More on that later. But I think a key thread of this book is Addie pretty quickly into being in Philadelphia is on the other side of greeting refugees, people who are fugitives from slavery who are coming to Philadelphia. And the real climax of the book is that the father does return. So they are at this Christmas pageant and Addie and her mother get to see the father again. And it's very exciting. Yes. That was a nice surprise because I don't, I didn't remember when he returned. So it was nice to kind of live that a second time that felt like the first time. Agreed. Yeah. But I mean, it's kind of difficult with these books because even when there's moments of joy as there are in this book um, quite a bit, it's also just tinged with sadness because of the reality of Addie's life. So it's hard even in a book that's meant to be celebratory to feel um, a true sense of joy. Like at one point in church, they sing joy to the world or they're, they're practicing joy to the world to sing it at church on Christmas. And I just remember thinking at that part in the book, like, this is not a word I would associate with Addie's world at this stage. Right. No, I think that's spot on. But I also think part of what was beautifully done about that aspect is Sarah, who is now officially Addie's best friend, mentions to her that there's going to be singing at church and some pageantry around the holidays. And again, Sarah has this amazing function of like being a very good friend to Addie on one level of the text. And she's also really sort of our guide to the experience of newly freed Black people in the North. Like a lot of exposition comes out through Sarah. So Sarah basically explains like, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have a service. We're going to have a light and shadow show and people are going to bake and share in community. And she's encouraging Addie to sing and Addie's kind of reluctant, but Sarah being a good friend immediately says, you know, I'll teach you. Mm -hmm. I'll make sure that you know what to do. And again, kind of the brilliance of how tightly these books are written. I find myself reading them very fast. Like there's not a lot to slog through. Like the pacing is very good and I feel like there's no throwaway segments. Yeah, I totally agree. And in fact, it seems so quickly that um, Connie Porter can turn Addie and her mom from a narrative of strangers to then this narrative of chosen family. Like Mm -hmm. we see literally how chosen family gets created for Addie and her mother in this church and that community and how they almost instantly come become the other side of this exchange of freed people emerging from the South, um, liberated and trying to, you know, navigate the fear of Philadelphia. And you almost get a sense of even more terror of what that prospect would feel like when you have a scene where Addie actually goes down to the pier and greets newcomers and helps them. And through her eyes, you can get a sense of like what that terror and panic would look like in a way that felt more palpable in some ways than when she embodied it in the last Mm -hmm. book or the first book or the last book, I should say. So that was really interesting. Um, 
And Sarah being such a good friend, you know, Addie's really nervous to kind of get involved with the Freedmen's Fund. She's nervous. She's not going to know the right thing to say to greet people. And, you know, Addie explains around page 28 that, you know, she felt so welcomed by Sarah and she wants to live up to that. And Sarah tells her, just be yourself, you know, just go out there, just be yourself. You know, this really nice affirming moment between the two of them. Because Addie has this real apprehension that, one, she wants Bill to buy her mother something nice, but she's feeling guilty Mm -hmm. because she feels like that money could be stretched to help people who have absolutely nothing. And she's had this great friend really take care of her and her mother, and she wants to repay that. Yeah, it's there's an interesting kind of inversion or alteration of a well-known like plot twist, which is that O. Henry story where I was thinking that yeah, where so the plot is basically that Addie wants to be able to buy her mother a scarf at a secondhand shop. The mom is also saving for a lamp, and then they go to church, and the mom is like, "Wow, we really need to give our money, our savings to the Freedmen's Fund." And then Addie feels a lot of guilt, and then gives the money she was kind of saving for the scarf also to the Freedmen's Fund. And then it's Mrs. Ford who owns the dress shop, who then gifts them with a lamp and with fabric that Addie could then use to make the scarf for her mother. And it's kind of like thinking about how that plot line is altered to kind of mimic that O. Henry plot line of, I think it's the woman who sells her comb, she sells her hair to buy the guy a watch chain, and then he sells his watch to buy her a comb or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like, what does it mean to have this kind of white person, like, intervening in what is normally a plot line between two characters to have, like, a black mother, her black daughter, and the white person who is helping them, air quotes, helping them and employing the mother be like not the savior in this situation, but the person with the economic power to kind of give both gifts. I I kind of felt like in that particular instance, this is the first time they've really caught a break. Yeah. So Mrs. Ford has not really been the nice. nicest, right? Like, And Mrs. Ford is still getting a lot more out of the relationship than one might think. Like there's a part where Addie is very excited because she is going to get to sit with her mother in the afternoons and to do stitches with her. And I think you're supposed to read that from her nine-year-old's perspective of like, oh, I get to go to work with mom. The reality is it's really cold. And so they're kind of conserving heat by all staying together. And she's doing extra work for free. Right. And the reason Addie doesn't want to be upstairs is because Mrs. Ford is like not a great landlord and has like (laughs) them living in a garret with a window that doesn't close in the middle of winter. So she's like, oh, I'll throw you this bone. You can sit down here with us where it's warmer and like also make me money by practicing stitch work on this apron. So to me, it's like the benevolence of Mrs. Ford isn't super convincing, nor do I think Connie Porter intends it to be. Like, I think she wants to point us to that. And in fact, there's a scene on page 18 that was actually made me really sad where Addie is saying, um, the mom has previously told her we can't light the stove until I'm making dinner because we don't have enough coal to get through the week if I keep it lit, you know, through the night or in the mornings when you wake up and you're cold. And so Addie gets home from doing deliveries and is like, can I light the stove upstairs now? And mama says, um, nope, you know, I don't light the stove until I start cooking supper. Um, I'll be up as soon um, as I finish this sash. And so Addie kind of is sadly like, okay. And Mrs. Ford says, how is everything up in the garret? Now, we know that they're living in a garret where the window doesn't shut. Like, that's the opening scene. There's snow coming in and they have to try to, like, 
bridge the gap between the sash and the wind and the the wall. But Mama answers, everything is fine. We get by. And then as Addie goes up the stairs, this is what was heartbreaking to me. There's a quote, we get by, Addie said softly to herself as she climbed the stairs. Mm. And the fact that in this literally the same page, she mimics this performative kind of phrase that her mother uses to acquiesce her white boss. And you just feel her internalizing that almost kind of double consciousness or that performative nature of how to kind of acquiesce or please the white people in your world to kind of just literally survive on the most basic level. It just made me so sad to see a child have to do that and to learn that skill. I also felt like they brought up Cole so much because now Cole is thought of as kind of the classic like quote bad child gift. Mm. Whereas historically like children actually did receive coal in indigent families as a help. Right. Right. And so I think part of what was interesting is like probably speaking to that like traditional middle-class reader of pleasant company or American girl. It was this thing of how this object that you probably associate with bad behavior is actually something that could have made Addie's life bearable. Like right. not even just nice, but bearable. I also think there's a lot going on with Mrs. Ford and throughout this whole book. They directly contrast the heat of the plantation and the coolness and the frigid air of Philadelphia mm-hmm. and this kind of newer experience for them. And I think in the same way that Janet Shaw did a really beautiful job with sensory experiences in Kirsten, reading this as an adult, there is honestly such an amazing subtlety to that. Like it sounds really blunt and obvious the way that we're talking about it, but that opening scene where that frigid air is just starting to come through and they're kind of physically getting this chill together underneath the quilt. There's this through line in this book where they can't close the window. They can't quite do it. And then when the father arrives, he's able kind of in one quick movement to close the window. Like it's very symbolic. It's very beautiful. But as you're reading it, it doesn't feel quite as direct as I'm making it sound. No, no, it's done quite elegantly. And I think that I think in the last book, I know I noted that what I really like about the writing is that there's these small moments that kind of send home the larger points that she's trying to make, like the tenderness between Addie's mother and Addie. And in this book, I think one of the details that really stayed with me that communicated how cold can be um, just so uh, effective in your everyday experience is that Addie notes that she puts her shoe. They we follow Addie mm-hmm. getting ready for school after she's been told they can't put coal into the stove, and she puts on her shoes that she are still damp from the day before when she stepped in a puddle on her way home from school. And it's like that's a feeling every reader has, even a child reading this book, of like when you step in something wet and then you have to walk around and your sock is all soaked and how just kind of annoying on a low level that is. But thinking about those low level grievances are an entry point into helping ground you to be with Addie on her journey, even as we watch her walk through things that none of us can understand or relate to. So it's just it's very subtly done and I think very good writing choices. When the dad does arrive, he explains what's wrong with the window, like using window terminology like sash, which we don't really need to know. But he says, it needs a new sash. I can make that. But it should be warmer in here now. And again, it's like done so so quickly, right? So effortlessly, like him physically closing the window. 
there's this kind of tension that lurks behind all of the books of like, they have these mundane problems, right? Like Addie's trying to save up for the scarf. They have these little issues like day by day. But the bigger thing, which I think I've kind of been like surprised by how good of a job it's at the forefront of your mind the whole time you're reading. Addie constantly kind of brings up to her mother, like, aren't you worried about Esther? Like, aren't you worried about Papa? Aren't you worried about these people? And like you're saying, I think like Addie's also kind of like looking for cues from her mother of how to be in the North. Like she's not sure. And I think that those scenes are just so incredibly well-written in that dialogue between the two of them. Cause Addie, has that very real fear that you start to have between like nine and 14. Like, does mom know what's up? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And like the scene where she knows how to read. And then I, it really was so affecting when the father comes back and he realizes that Addie can read a note that's been oh attached to a lamp yes. left by Mrs. Ford. Um, and he just says, you know, I'm so proud. He starts and, crying. Yeah. Like he says, 54. he starts crying. He says, I'm crying because I'm so happy. I'm so proud you can read. And then he says, I always knew you were a smart girl. And it was like, ah, uh, it was like that Hallmark commercial again for me. I was like, I can't do this today. Well, and it makes you remember it was only two books ago when Addie was kind of talking with her brother, Sam, and they were reciting jokes. And like the family had a really keen sense that she was clever and smart, Mm -hmm. but probably also had this feeling of like, well, what will that actually mean for her life and not knowing? Right. Yeah. And I think that something that is also interesting about the narrative arc of this book is that it's a Christmas book that is not overtly religious. Like if we think back to some of like Josefina's books, even Kirsten's in some ways, um, it's there's certainly a Christianity to it that's way more overt than in a discussion or a framing of the Christian or the Christ story to understand like why Josefina, like when in the book where she is replicating um you know, Mary and Joseph's search for stable on Christmas Eve, like you have to understand what she's actually like, what that play is for her to, um, to understand how she fits into it. And here they don't give us anything about the Christian story, but it is interesting that we have a shadow play of Mm -hmm. the Christmas story. And then Addie's father arrives and literally is imagined as a carpenter who like, all we really know about him in this moment is that he arrives literally in their garret where they've been now for a while And the two of them could not shut the window. And immediately he can both shut it and states with expertise, like, yes, I can fix it. So it's sort of like he's figured as a carpenter and he's a father. But to me, it's like, okay, so it's father, mother, child. And yet Esther is not there. Like the baby is not there. So it's kind of an interesting mapping of one story on another, but with a clear, all these like absences and traumas that make it that much more sad, frankly. That's what I was saying before, that it's a book of joy, but with it makes it very difficult to experience joy. I think, because I made a bullet point of like, list. Here's all the things that these holiday books have, right? Like there is clearly a formula and each one of these is formulaic to some different extent. But I think pretty consistently in the first three that we've covered and now Addie, the holiday books have been the most consistent, right? Mm. There's a holiday gathering to this day. It's always been Christmas. There is a church scene. There is a sense of holiness. There is a return or an important moment with the father. We see you Felicity on the date with your dad or sorry, that was Josefina, but the father figure is incredibly important. 
there's an extraordinary effort put forth by a mother for something. There's always a doll transaction, right? Subtle, pleasant. And there's always a moment or series of moments where the daughter has to be especially concerned with family unity and family happiness. Mm -hmm. With all that said, part of what I really liked about this book is everything in both Kirsten and Josefina around kind of the Christianity piece of the holiday was so heavily ritualized. Like the way that they were experiencing it was like they were learning rituals or enacting rituals. What I loved about the scenes in the AME church was this sense that their religious leader in the church was kind of helping them reinvent themselves like through a new kind of process. Mm-hmm. And the peak into the past hints at and talks about the invention of Kwanzaa literally a hundred years later. But what I think was really brilliant about situating them in the AME church was saying like, this is a community that's valuable to them and they're spending the holidays there because they're believers and it's a holy day for them. But the entire homily, the entire talk that they're having as an or like dialogue really between the minister and the people attending church is about deeds. Like Mm -hmm. it's about how they're going to support the Freedmen's Fund. And it's very different from like Josefina's Christmas ritual, which is about like just binding that community together. This is about how they're going to do acts of service to like really unite everybody. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. And what I also love about those scenes in the church is that it gives you this space. It emphasizes the value of this space for its members as a place where they can be fully actually emancipated and liberated in a way that on the streets of Philadelphia they can't. And I think that's really illustrated by the scenes where there's call and response with the minister. So the minister in his sermon is saying something. And if you feel it, as is explained to Addie in the book, if you feel what the minister is saying, you can answer Um, You can speak. And this is not something that's allowed. You know, there's so much policed behavior and regulated behavior, even among freedmen and especially among freedmen in the North, um, as Addie's finding that kind of initial disappointment with freedmen, like, what do you mean I can't ride on a streetcar? And to see to see people in that space truly get to be themselves. It's like, not only are we going to continue to pay this forward with acts of service, but we're also going to kind of be very actively mindful in the moment of like why this is a joyful place and why this is a chosen family. Yeah. And I think you learn so much too. Like you learn a little bit in the back of the book and you can also look into, so AME stands for African Methodist Episcopal. And I think part of what is, again, just very well done in the way those scenes are portrayed, you're learning two things, exactly like what you're pointing to with the streetcar example. Addie is both in a segregated context by attending this church, like it is a segregated church, but she's also becoming part of a community and a world where she still feels connected to people who aren't with her because they're in a shared cause. And I was curious what was happening in December 1864 and January 1865. And it was one of the worst parts of the Civil War. And because you look at kind of like Sherman, what he's doing down in the South. I have my handy dandy timeline. Don't worry. I was very curious. Um, Like literally three days before this scene, Sherman has occupied Savannah. There's the famous March to the Sea. This is not a military podcast. I'm not saying other things, but... There's a lot happening in that month. And typically people think of the Christmas time as being quiet. That particular period, definitely. I kind of love that we're not like hearing about those things. And yet we are getting 
a different perspective, which is there are literal refugees who are coming up from places like Baltimore, which are kind of borderland states. There are people coming up, they are arriving. And we'd alluded to earlier the controversy with Pleasant Company. It actually comes from that scene where Addie on pages 32 and 33 is meeting refugees at the pier. That is where there was a breakdown between the team and Pleasant Company's end and Melody Rosales about the illustrations. So can you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So she writes a bit about it on her website. And Emily Zaslow, who's done work both for an American Girl book and in an article that we will link to, talks about um, why Rosales was fired. She did an interview with the Chicago Tribune, but it comes down to this particular scene and the fact that it was declared, quote, too sad. Hmm. So Addie is going down to greet people. Um, according to Aisha Harris's article and other primary sources, Rosales says that Pleasant Company told her to make it happier and to have the woman, quote, smile more. And Connie Porter, again, according to the Aisha Harris article, um, says that there were meetings between the board and Pleasant Company um, and that Rosales did, did not want to add happiness where it didn't make sense and the quote is joy might come in the morning but it's not coming when you're tired and you're hungry and you've left behind family members um and then she was likening it to other images of refugees that they were seeing coming in off of boats from that time period um and again just to continue porter pleasant didn't mean ill or even the art director it's just that they're trying to tell the story in a certain way and they're careful about what they're putting out for young readers but Pleasant Rowland also said to her, I'm not paying you to be a historian. I'm paying you to be a pair of hands. Oh, good God, Pleasant. So the real tension is over Rosales rightfully pointing to, you know, there's a specific historical context and there's also a reality that people are not going to be happy. And then Pleasant Rowland actually demanding pleasantness where it wouldn't have existed. Wow. Um that was roundabout, I know, but I think no, no, no. It's I think important. It's, it's it's actually making me think about a lot of different things. So I'm just trying to like think about the order in which I want to say this. So it strikes me that um, it's interesting that Pleasant and Company were upset with a realistic depiction of um, refugee life when it's located in the north, or what yeah. trauma looks like when it's located in the north. So in other words. Were there the same kind of debates and threats when um, the illustrator was illustrating Addie's life as an enslaved person when she's being forced to eat worms and having violence perpetrated against her? And honestly, the most chilling illustration in all of these books so far to me is when she's with, she's serving the table in book one and during a conversation when it's implied that she's not going to be sold until she's entered reproductive years. Like that was bone chilling to me, still is. So why is it that we're comfortable seeing, you know, black trauma and black violence in the South and we're uncomfortable with it in the North? And- I think there's a lot invested in this book. Like, I think you can see that tension come yeah. out because in the back, there is a passing reference to the fact that the Civil War was just not as bad and did not really affect people in the North. And I'm not trying to say that there are comparable experiences. Again, we're literally talking about places like Savannah, like Nashville, being invaded at the same time for people living, particularly in urban areas who are 
suffering a lot because of the economic turmoil of the Civil War. I think that's totally unfair. Yes. You it's have- not great for Addie. <laughs> no. Life is not good for Addie in the North. I mean, it's like she's a child and she has to, you know, internalize messages like um, we get by, like coded language, ways of performing that certainly she did in the South. But it's like her life in Philadelphia is not a cakewalk. I mean, she's living with overt racism, um, seeing the limitations put on um, black people in this urban area that she associated with freedom in, in its absence. And you know, I think it just kind of gets at like, what is the role of this book? Like, what are the mm-hmm. roles of these books according to Pleasant Rowland versus someone like Connie Porter or the illustrators? Like, how did they go into this thinking about how they hoped it would reach readers? And not only what kind of vision of the past they would present, but also what it what message it would send home about the the present? Um, because certainly mm-hmm. race is not something that was air quotes, solved by the Civil War, even though there certainly were historic interpretations in the 80s and 90s that somewhat suggested that by conservative historians who didn't really want to deal with that. Like if you look at how people date the end of Reconstruction, it tells you a lot um, about kind of where they're coming from. But I want to just read this quote by, and I read this essay by Zadie Smith. um, That's Mm -hmm. a review of um, Kara Walker, the artist I mentioned earlier's work. And she starts off by doing an analysis of a piece that Carol Walker did called What I Want History to Do to Me. And it's an image, kind of almost cartoon image, of a white woman in an antebellum era dress and a black woman. And they have a rope tied around their waist and they're walking away from each other. And so even as they're walking away from each other, it the rope is tying tight between them, emphasizing their physicality and sort of like eroticizing them. But it kind of points to this fact that like black women and white women are kind of like defined together by history, that white women have defined themselves against black women in particular to kind of like emphasize superiority and Kara Walker's work um, works against that. And she, if you've not seen any of her work, it's a lot of cutouts. Like, so it actually is like the silhouette play in the book. Um, Mm. It's silhouettes of um, black people in some cases, superimposed over um, Harper's Weekly images. So the exhibit that I saw that's on tour is of black cutouts over um, scenes of enslaved people in Harper's Weekly, like real issues, and to kind of emphasize the violence of slavery that often was not remarked upon in these original publications. But she talks about her work as a – Zadie Smith talks about Kara Kara Walker's work as a monument. And this is something that she wrote that actually just made me think about these books – Monuments are complacent. They put a seal upon the past. They release us from dread. For Walker, dread is an engine. It prompts us to remember and rightly fear the ruins we shouldn't want to return to and don't wish to recreate. If we're wise, dread is surely one of the things we want history to cause in us, lest we forget. Um, So I was kind of thinking about the ways that these books are a monument and even the ways that these conversations about how the books were produced are also a monument of the time in which they were produced. So Mm -hmm. this conversation about the illustrations can maybe tell us something about the 90s um, and how we wanted to think about race. Um, You know, like, what are these books a monument to now? And I think rightly, as we're saying, like, the, the reading experience is not one of joy, even though that's what Addie is described as feeling. I think it is a feeling of dread. Like, and in some ways, like, these books are a monument um, that create an unsettling feeling maybe on purpose. If you read Addie's tagline, 
So her tagline is Addie, a proud, courageous girl determined to be free in the midst of the Civil War. When I first read that, I thought, oh, well, that really only applies to book one, right? Mm. Because she self-liberates in book one. But the more you read these books, the more you realize how accurate that is because it's not about that struggle only of liberation. It's about what that will actually mean. And this book has many, many times the phrase that freedom isn't free articulated by different people in different ways. Chapter four is called The Cost of Freedom. Mm -hmm. Part of what I think this book does very well is it points to something we have briefly mentioned before, which was this economic piece of liberation, which was, and Ta-Nehisi Coates has written about this a lot. People had to financially invest in their own families and to invest a huge amount of money, not just energy, not just emotion into literally freeing other people that they knew. And you see this with the way that pretty much immediately Addie and her mother are involved in other efforts for freed people, the same way that Sarah and her mother was doing. And they're, they're already investing in other people's freedom. There's a moment where Addie, this is kind of like her radicalized moment where she's delivering a dress and it's right after she has seen these refugees at the pier and Addie's going and dropping off her mother's work. Usually Addie would have been fascinated by people with their fine clothes and fancy manners, but today they seem silly. She remembered the people shivering at the pier. A man in a top hat strolled by swinging a fine walking stick. Addie thought of the man at the pier in his foot with his foot in dirty bandages. And it's like in much the same way that Kirsten first realized that there was a top deck and a below deck. Addie just has this like startling moment of clarity where she's like, yeah, I actually don't even care about dropping these dresses off and having this one kind of wow moment and getting a good tip. She's totally turned off by them. I'm not saying she's like Sanders 2020, but <laughs> Like, maybe. I don't know. We can't say. We can't say at this time. But it is interesting that it's like, wow, Harriet feels so far in our rearview mirror at this point. Like, remember the wonder that Addie initially had about going to Harriet's for ice cream and to study and to kind of, like, just be a visitor to her world? Yeah. Now she's just kind of like, I would spike that ice cream cone. <laughs> I know. Like, peace. I'm out of here. She's like, I want freedom not ice cream. I want both for her. Yes. I think the way that that was done. And again, if you're not rereading this with us, I, I do totally understand. Like we all have a lot going on in our lives, but in terms of literature, the subtlety of the writing is so good and so important. And I think when you understand that this was written kind of under duress with like conflict, you appreciate even more how much in this book, I think really challenges conventional ideas about slavery, about freedom. And I think it's something that constantly needs to be reinforced that there weren't two poles, a slave society and a free society. There was degrees of freedom. And there's a famous book by Rebecca Scott, literally called Degrees of Freedom. That's very good. But this notion of like people are constantly renegotiating and reengaging in struggles to be free. And the church is just one place where Addie is kind of starting to work with other people to figure that out. Yeah, and I think it's interesting just to see the I think the transparency of the issues behind the production of this book are actually really important to make public because those are conversations that ripple across our culture 
And, you know, like I mentioned Kara Walker earlier, when she won a MacArthur Genius Grant, a very famous black woman artist named Betty Saar uh, actually wrote letters of protest to members of like the MacArthur board and others saying basically her interpretation of Kara Walker's work was that it was presenting Im- like caricatures of black people for the amusement of white people. So it actually was not empowering of black people, but sort of placating white people's visions of black people. And therefore she was being rewarded, but it was ultimately bad for black culture. And she herself um, has a very famous artwork called The Liberation of Aunt Jemima, where she takes she takes found objects and creates sculptures. That's her main the thing for which she's most known, although she's also a printmaker and um, an artist in many media. But it's interesting just to see these conversations about how do we how do we reckon with depictions of black women in particular and black Americans and the experience of slavery and its ramifications that there are these degrees of freedom, but also degrees of how you represent the black experience as it's been rendered under the white gaze. Like what is reappropriating it? How do you represent the black experience knowing that it's going to have a white audience? Like there's so many fraught things that are happening in this kind of level of conversation with MacArthur Genius Grants, but then also Mm. in the Addie books. And it's roughly around the same time, actually. So I don't know. It's just really interesting to me. And I I actually admire the illustrator for coming forward and telling her story because I think it's important. She's also, you should check out her website. She's a very talented doll maker and mixed media artist as well as a children's book illustrator. So she's been in all sorts of things. But what you were just saying about kind of the politics of this, there's been a lot written. And again, Emily Zaslow does a nice job of summarizing a lot of the debates that people have had about the toys that come with Addie or the material Mm. culture objects. So the amount of things that you could get 20 plus years ago, sorry, not 20. This is not a math podcast, but <laughs> in the early not. 90s, the amount of things that you could purchase to go with an Addy doll, there's a very tiny fraction still available today. So there was like mm. a whole range of objects among the things that you can still get or could still get when she was writing is a quilt based on an authentic 1854 quilt. So based on a real object, you could still get Addie's lunch pail. You could get cookies that spelled out love. But, and this is um, Zaslow writing about this, again, summarizing what others had done with Mattel and Pleasant Company. You can no longer get what they refer to as meaningful semiotic markers of her story. So the things that are actually like really specific, hmm. she gives a few examples. You can no longer purchase the Mancala, um, which she notes is an African game that was brought over as part of the Atlantic slave trade. Um, and it's described here as identified as a tool for teaching children about African contributions to math. They caught that. Um, there are hmm. other things that you can no longer get. So other discontinued objects, including Addie's sweet potato pudding kit, which is central to the last part of this book where yes. the mother is making that. You can't get her school supplies or school desk. You can't get her gardening supplies, sled, thread, puppet show kit, table and chairs, or bird and birdcage. Oh my God, what? So basically anything that actually had real significance, you cannot get. They were discontinued. 
Why? What is the official reason for that? So it doesn't say, but there are kind of other things that are talked about in in her work and other works that in, in much the same way that people have speculated quite a bit about Cecile, which was the first multiracial doll and mm. mixed race doll that was actually put out by the company. She was discontinued very quickly in the context of this company. Mm. It's a corporation that is going to make decisions, you know, I think with the language of it being about business, but we have to look at what Pleasant and others said about, you know, quote, like just being afraid it wouldn't sell well but it comes from a place of racist conjecture about what people will buy and who matters in the market, I think. I was curious reading this book, and obviously I'm not as up on the material culture of it all, but did they ever try to market or sell something like an Ida Bean doll for Addie? I don't know, but I would have to imagine that it would come with some of these kits, right? It would, because they do that for some of the other dolls, right? Like their doll is a thing you can buy, Right. Yeah. But it seems like yeah. Ida Bean would be really fraught because those dolls, like if you go to any antique place anywhere in New England, you will find those kinds of dolls. And it's just like white people selling them is really. Yeah. She's $53 on Amazon. Who? Ida Bean? Uh huh. What? Yeah. She's still out there. So you can buy an American Girl Addy bedroom accessories kit, which comes with a lamp and Ida Bean. Okay. I don't make the rules, Mary. I'm just Um, saying, it's like, no, I'm just like, (laughs) I'm reacting to this in real time. None of this makes any sense to me at all. And again, just because I think like she summarizes it really well, um, part of why that pudding is such an important part of the Christmas story is that was written in by Connie Porter kind of as a tribute to her grandmother. Like Mm. that is why that is in there. Um, Again, to quote Zaslow, the pudding was symbolic of a bittersweet day. For Addie, who is experiencing her first free holiday and the fellowship of a church. Um, but obviously, they're still missing lots of other people. Hmm. And then she lists out like the educational objects are so important because they represent a certain kind of freedom to learn. The gardening supplies are about the family having their own land and not being on a plantation. The puppet show, which comes later, is about Addie trying to raise money for other free people. And the sled, again, coming later, is about her, like, having a childhood, and they cut all of those things. I'm not happy hearing this. But you can make the love cookies. Great. I mean, it's just, it's kind could of you, like. Could you fathom if they spelled out love is blind And, like, the dough? they did a tie-in with Eve? <sighs> You're shaking your head. Add, Addie's mom would not have time for, for Eve. That. For Eve, maybe. Eve has kind of like chilled out a bit in recent years and is now like a talk show host. But yeah, I remember Eve of Who's That Girl era, a classic jam for the ages. I work out to that still. It's a great song. I don't doubt that. I wanted to play Love is Blind on this episode. And then I looked up the lyrics and I was like, oh, my God, I did not remember how violent this is and traumatic. And I I can't handle that today. I do just want to make sure we include one more quote from... Melody Rosales, who I think is amazing because I kind of just like love the way that she talked back against this major corporation and the juggernaut that is pleasant or unpleasant. My crime was asking too many questions and challenging them to depart from making black history part of their saccharine sanitized collection (gasps) of the perfect nine-year-old girlhood fantasy, a visual impossibility to illustrate in 1864 black hood reality. 
also buy her dolls because they're cool. Oh my god! Wow. Props to her. Love that quote. Yeah. I mean, I think it just kind of gets back to like this idea of like monuments being something that should inspire dread and not just commemoration or like feel good feelings, but also that books should do that too. Like, mm-hmm. and maybe we should trust kids to be able to sit with some difficult feelings in a reading experience and trust that, you know, with an adult who cares for them, who can help them process that in a responsible way that not only can they handle it, but they might actually grow from it. And, you know, like life is complicated enough. Like I don't really buy like dumbing stuff down for kids all the time. I think that's a mistake, but it does seem like children's lit has come a long way since then and kind of like giving kids credit for being able to handle more than maybe we thought they could in whatever year this was. Now, I was thinking of two academic books while I was reading this, one of which was Michelle Mitchell's African Americans and the Politics of Racial Destiny After Reconstruction. That first part is called Righteous Propagation. That's an excellent study. Mary Farmer Kaiser also wrote a book about the Freedmen's Bureau, and she writes specifically about freed women. That said, feel like part of what this book captures so well is that experience that Addie has of being still in such a vulnerable state herself Mm. and the extent to which she and her family and this community that she's part of are giving everything they have to ensure that other people can be more comfortable. Mm. And pretty much every major study of this period has borne out the amazing generosity of people who had almost nothing to support other people. And I think that that scene of refugees within their own country, I think has so much resonance today. Totally. And I think something that I was thinking a lot about this book was that the doll being named Ida Bean made me think that this is Connie Porter winking at Ida B. Wells. (laughs) I would love that. Who was born roughly around the time of the setting of this book, born into Mm -hmm. slavery, and then obviously had a very um, momentous life as an activist in many different areas, obviously raising awareness about lynching, she went at Francis Willard and Francis Willard was not okay. I'm just going to say that. Not, yeah. not a hero for this show to Ida B. Wells. But thinking about like the kind of networking and care and community that Addie grew up in and Ida B. Wells grew up in and the ways that they replicated that kind of associative culture. I mean, Ida B. Wells goes on to to found, as you all know, like women's clubs and all of these community groups that in many ways build on this culture that starts in the church of like the chosen family and the community group. So yeah, just lots there thinking about how Addie's childhood would maybe frame her adulthood um, in ways that you can see elsewhere. I feel like Kirsten definitely went to the Columbian Exposition in 1893. But I feel like Addie protested it. 100%. She was protesting with Ida. And Kirsten's in there with Frances Willard. (laughs) Kirsten is that girl who would be a temperance activist. Okay, but so am I. No no lips that touch alcohol shall ever touch mine. And if you've seen photos of any of these women, you're like, okay. Okay, but that's so me. Okay, but... Not in the sense that you're not cute because you are, but it's like you love a cause. You love like drawing a line in the sand. I do. Kind of for no reason. And you're like, I will burn my house down to prove this point. Yeah. No, that's very true. That's very I would have liked to have been Carrie Nation and take a hatchet and just like 
mess up a bar or two, get it out of my yeah. system. And then I would move on probably. Like, I don't know who I am in all of that, but hard to the say. The thing about Carrie Nation that people forget is like she also understood fully and could recite the law for the basis of why she was doing what she was doing. And that's where I would step in. Like you would physically throw the hatchet and then I'd be like, let me explain. I would, they would be like, just so you know, like what you're about to do is against the law. And I'd be like, I'm hearing everything you're saying out of my way. I got something I got to do right now. I'm about to be a volcano in this place. And then you would be sort of like my representation following a safe distance behind to be like what Mary meant to say and then produce a legal brief and be like this, that, done. Now, like speaking of like legal briefs and other matters, Addie chooses her birthday. Do we know that yet? Yeah. We're I'm I'm just giving the folks some foreshadowing of where we're going. Oh, I see. Yes. No, I'm very excited because we're in December 1864 and I've been like clocking the Civil War as we're going through. When we next meet up with Addie, it is April 1865. Like this cruel war is almost over, Mary. You know, I think I'm just a man will die. Man's gonna die. At the theater. R.I.P. But just circling back, the fact that Addie didn't choose to be a Leo is just something I'm gonna have to sit with, I guess. I think we're gonna have to do some like deep investigation into what her Aries status means, but I'm really excited for her. I'm excited. I'm I'm really interested interested to see where this goes. Always very interested in this writing. Connie Porter's doing a great job. You know, we haven't had any of these moments in previous books when, you know, Val like takes us to a place and I get scared. So it's been a good experience. I'm going to give this book the best rating for date with your dad status because every surprise story has had like a weird moment between a father and a daughter. And I'm giving this one like the least weird grade. Like this has been the least one. Like Kirsten was in the cave with her father hanging out, spilling secrets Yes. Felicity, I'm not even going to go there. And then if you remember with Josefina, it was like, we'll just pretend we're an item. I don't even want to think about that anymore. I honestly, that feels tame to me. This is just a spoiler from the Anne Rinaldi episode. But Anne Rinaldi thanks her son and daughter in the acknowledgments, which was the first thing I read in that book, for posing as the romantic couple on the cover of her book. Yeah. Like, did somebody call DCF? I don't know. I might call now. That book came out in 1986. I don't, is there a statute of limitations? I hope not. I can honestly say we're not just trying to tease that episode. It truly was maybe the most fun that we've had talking about one of these stories because we have so much like tremendous appreciation for what we've been reading with Addie. And then we kind of found the love is blind equivalent of 1980s historical fiction. It's, thank you, Anne. Thank you, Anne, for your service. And also, if I could forward my therapy bills to you, <laughs> would love to do that. Yes. Wow. Now, Allison, I just want to close this out here by, you know, we mentioned possibly doing a new segment briefly. You know, we're inspired by the IGAG community on Instagram, doing a lot yes. of great work. And one of the things that they do that we both love is they kind of hack AG and they present or create characters that AG has not represented yet, like either historical periods that haven't been covered or kinds of representations that they want to see. So we just want to close out by offering like some names of people that we think deserve AG status. 
So I was in a public school tonight as part of my job, and I saw something that shook me to my core. I'm listening. If, if you remember the early aughts campaign, Drop Everything and Read? Sure. I saw in the wild a Michelle Kwan Drop Everything and Read poster, oh beautifully God. preserved as if it was like 2004, and I had on, you know, like people were wearing Dinko and <laughs> – Sketchers around me. And I just want to applaud this institution because I never thought I would see those posters again. You know what? I love Michelle Kwan. Keep keep doing you, girl. I don't know what's happening to you since your divorce. I hope you're okay. I guess you're thriving. I don't know. Would love some. She's not acknowledging it, so neither are we. I mean, I'm offended on her behalf. Like I won't recover from this. And also I should say Nick Lachey is hosting Love is Blind with his (laughs) wife. Yeah. And I thumbed through Jessica Simpson's memoir in a Barnes and Noble. I maybe just break down and buy it for myself and also force you to read it. So like stay tuned for that. If you want us to cover it, let us know. We'll we'll yeah. we'll look into it. But I'm convinced by what I what I briefly gleaned from Jessica Simpson that he you know, it takes two to tango, but I just feel like he didn't appreciate her and yeah. what she could offer. So there's Is she that. your nominee? She is not my nominee. Okay, she didn't say. know what tuna fish was, so I don't think. Allison, this is the kind of cruel stereotype that she has had to work against, and I will note for you that she created a thriving fashion business. She did. That's fine. And nobody's talking about that. So, you know, I'm just I, saying. I think we're talking about it just enough. Allison? <laughs> Yes. I'm pausing yes. on that. Hit me. Yeah. I want I have three names for you. You know, in honor of Black History Month, here we go. Serena Williams, number okay. one. Serena Williams, famous for many things, but won the Australian Open while pregnant with her daughter. And like essentially her initials point to that fact because she will never let anyone forget that. Yeah. Yeah, I won the Australian Open while I was pregnant with this child. It's also because her husband is Alexis Ohanian. Doesn't matter. Like she's it's considered like, a junior. They call her a junior. Okay, but the main point is, <laughs> yes. If you will follow me, like we do not have any conversations, enough conversations about this woman excelling at this level while bringing a life into this world. Like I'm sorry, I'm grading her on a different scale. Like I can't, I can't fathom her. We're living on the same planet at the same time. It's beautiful. Serena Williams, number one. My next pick is someone who's already passed RIP, Shirley Chisholm. That's a okay. You made up this segment <laughs> 60 minutes ago, but you clearly had thought about it. No, I hadn't. I, I had these three names. Prepared. My last one's like not real at all. Oh, is it Katherine Johnson who passed away this week? No, that is a real one. That's a good okay. one. Yes. Yeah, we one. should honor her. Thank yeah. you, Katherine Johnson. Last one is Tyra Banks, and it's just because somebody reminded me this week of her smizing freak out when she was like, I was I was posing on 9-11. Like, what were you doing? No. That's it. And this is not a nominee, but I did find out this fact today that I'll share with you that New York of VH1 fame is Drake's stepmom now. That's cool. I actually really like that. So I'm just saying, ending on a high, you know, I'm glad that that worked out for her. So yeah. God bless. We've come full circle from Ariana Grande to Drake's stepmom. Mm-hmm. If people have other folks they want to nominate, they should absolutely feel free to drop us a line. Yeah, we'd email. love to share them. That'd be great. American Girls Podcast. If they want to follow us on Twitter – 
We are reachable at a girl's pod. You can also reach out to us on Instagram at American Girls Podcast. And you can follow me by just looking at my first and last name on all the socials. Very official. You can follow yes. me on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123 or Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. And once again, thank you genuinely to everyone who has been supporting our Patreon Mm -hmm. and to everyone who reaches out to us, even just to say like something they enjoy about the show or something it makes you think about or sending us a link to a story you think we might like or something funny on Instagram. It genuinely does brighten our day. So thank you so much. Yes. And when we catch you next time, it will be Addie's birthday. Can't wait.